Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Animal Studies. Today I'm speaking to Rob Percival, head of policy at the Soil Association, Britain's leading food and farming charitable organization. In his new book, The Meat Paradox, Rob outlines the history, psychology, and ethics of meat eating. Despite being an omnivore, Rob is deeply sympathetic to the vegan cause. This unique perspective positions him to effectively address meat eaters as one of their own and makes The Meat Paradox one of the most interesting books on the topic since Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Good to be here. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your personal background and what inspired you to write this book. Certainly. So I work for the the Soil Association, um, which is a UK charity campaigning for healthy and sustainable food and farming. The organization works right across the the food system um, in quite a practical sense with farmers and land managers to support a transition to um, organic, agroecological and regenerative farming. And then um, uh, uh, up the supply chain with with food businesses all the way up to, to national policymakers. Uh, and my role is really focused on the the diet shift that we need to to make a sustainable food system possible. Um, and in this capacity, I, um, I I focus on political influencing, so working at a Westminster level with the UK government, and on public facing campaigns, so trying to engage citizens to to change their behaviour and put pressure on on businesses. Um, and in both those contexts, I found myself at the the centre of a, a heated and, and polarised debate. Um, uh, related to animal consumption, meat consumption, meat has become a, a polarizing issue um, with deeply entrenched camps uh, at either end of the dietary spectrum um, arguing the cause. Um, and I began to, to wonder what um, was was driving the, the divisive nature of the debate. Why was it so polarized? Why was it so emotionally heated? And this led me to a, a body of science which has been 
published in the um, uh, the journals of social psychology over the past um, decade, um, uh, all, all falling under the banner of the meat paradox. Um, so looking at the, the psychological tensions and cognitive forces which which skew our relationship with meat, um, and the book was was born from there and, and and took me off in some really unexpected directions. Could you tell us a little bit about what the the meat paradox is and its roots in psychology? Well, when it comes to um, animals, the animals we consume, we we often say one thing and, and do another. We claim to care for animal welfare, but it's factory farmed chickens and pigs that, that make up the, the bulk of our diet. Um, in the UK, one in three of us claim to be eating less meat. We're all going flexitarian and vegetarian or vegan, or, or so we say. But uh, consumption data shows that we're not really eating less meat. We're actually eating just as much as we were 10 years ago. And sitting beneath this um, is a sense of, of deep moral anxiety. We, we are inclined to empathize with, with animals, albeit in an inconsistent manner. Um, and there's a sense of ethical distress that can arise when we perceive that we've contributed towards the harm of an animal, um, which is intrinsic to, to animal farming. We, we kill animals to consume them. Um, and this, uh, psychologists um, believe, creates a state of, of cognitive dissonance, of emotional tension. Uh, and in the past 10 years, they've begun to map out how we, how we manage that tension, looking at some of the strategies on both a cognitive and cultural level uh, that we uh, enact to, to navigate the tension, to, to maintain um, our, our status as um, seemingly empathetic omnivores. Um, and it's it's revealed some really surprising things um, uh, about the the nature of human perception and and the way that society treats animals and thinks about animals. There's a an interesting part of the book where you talk about uh, veganuary, uh, and veganuary uh, is this this period of time in January where people take a vow to eat vegan, uh, and in this section you talk about how. Uh, veganuary has actually caused a lot of backlash. And why is it that uh, asking people or trying to convince people to go vegan is so offensive for some people? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the psychologists um, who, who's led some of this research into the meat paragraph, uh, sorry, meat paradox, um, is is called Hank um, Rothgerber, and he conducted a study which I think is really illuminating. He he took a couple of groups of volunteers, and he exposed them to um, to two individuals: one individual who who ate a, a gluten free diet, and and one who was vegetarian or, or, or vegan, um, and then. Um, uh, uh, gave the participants a whole series of questionnaires to fill out. They didn't really know what they were being uh, tested on, examined on. And those who'd been exposed to a vegan were um, were, were more likely to um, denigrate farm animals, downplay their estimation of, of how mindful and sentient uh, those animals are. And they were also um, inclined to underestimate their, their meat consumption. They, they claimed to eat less meat than, they, than the other group, um, which had been exposed to a gluten-free individual. And they, they they were inclined to go on the tack um, and and um, uh, denigrate the the individual who who had chosen not to eat meat, um, and it's a sort of microcosm for for a lot of what we see across society where um, we're extremely sensitive um, as as meat eaters as omnivores to um, the the ethical critique which is embodied in veganism and in vegan individuals those who who choose not to to eat meat um, because it confronts us with the fact that it is a choice. Um, it's 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 more complicated than that. It's that the, there are, and we can come on to this, um, reasons to think that um, in some cases 
animals should have a role in the diet um, in a carefully caveated sense. But um, on the whole, um, it is a choice um, and, and vegans confront us with that choice. And Veganuary has become a sort of flagship annual um, event, um, uh, which comes with its own you know baggage it's it's all glitzy and social media and full of celebrities and can be a bit silly but um but it, it really has has lodged the the vegan cause in in the mainstream um and and provoked yeah a, a backlash which is um interesting and, and and i think actually quite concerning i think with with a lot of the vegan movement or or push towards vegetarianism there's a, a lot of emotion behind it and i i think what's interesting about about your book is that you focus on a lot of different farmers who do farm animals for meat consumption, but also have similar concerns about the ethics of farming as a vegan might, and also have concerns about the environmental impacts. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of those farmers that you spoke with and how speaking with them and seeing their views, you know, might, uh, run counter to uh, a narrative certain narratives about farmers perspectives on eating meat yeah i think the the media has has contributed and, and social media has contributed to this um yeah this this sense that um vegans and farmers are in opposing camps and, and animal activists and food producers are at odds with each other um and we've got quite a, a crude narrative as to what each side of the debate cares about um but there there are yeah four four farmers who, who feature in the book and each of them is is in a different place one is an ex-animal farmer one is a, a sort of strident um pro-ruminant um organic farmer um one um i discussed who was the um uh, a key figure um, in, in in the soil association it was a, a vegetarian animal farmer so so farmed animals but, but didn't eat meat himself um uh, and, and and one who who talked very openly to me about um, eating his animals and loving his animals and the the kind of tensions and how, how we how we navigated those tensions. Um, I think what um, what came through was the sense that um, uh, firstly that that industrial animal farming is is, is undoubtedly a, a huge ethical concern as well as an environmental disaster. Um, some of these farmers were were suggesting that. That there, there was another way. There was a more ethical way. There was a, a role that animals could play in a sustainable food system. But each of them were was grappling with with the um, the sort of quandary which is at the heart of the book, which is the the emotional and psychological toll of of killing. And um and they they all went about it in a in a different way. But they were very open to, to that conversation. And I think this is one of the great misperceptions that has arisen as the result of this. Um, simplified and polarized narrative the idea that the farmers aren't willing to have this conversation um don't, don't want to um uh um uh, acknowledge that, that there is a conversation even to have around the, the ethics of meat but but i think if you if you if you tee up that conversation in an appropriate manner if you if you go about it in the right way then um my experience certainly working with farmers and alongside farmers has been that they're very willing to, to talk about the ethics of meat and and have important insights to to share I think that there was one uh, portrait of a farmer that you painted about his relationship with a cow that he had named Ned. Mm -hmm. uh, what what was that relationship and what was that experience like talking with this farmer? So this was, um, yeah, Alex, who, who farms um, in, in West Wales, um, who um, employs a 
what they call a calf at heel dairy system. Um, so the, the calves in the dairy stay, stay with their mother until a natural weaning age. They're not removed as in as is commonplace in the dairy industry. Um, and it's sort of small scale and organic and, and higher welfare. Um, uh, um, but obviously in, 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 the, in the case of dairy, there are still big ethical questions to, to ask even in higher welfare systems. And Alex told me about um, Ned, who, who was his favorite calf, the first calf to be born on the farm um and and a big character um uh his his mum used to um every now and then f- forget him and leave him sort of stranded in the corner of the farm and alex would have to go and carry him back and and, and look after him and then he had a sort of big silly haircut um as, as far as cows can have a haircut um but he 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 killed him and ate him he was his favorite animal and he killed him and he ate him um and i was asking alex you know what he what he made of that he said that he loved ned how, how could he kill him and eat him if he loved him and I think his his answer was interesting because he um, he he was very open to um, the idea that it was an important question and and that um, some of the rationalizations he offered in response might be um, sort of a, a comfort blanket. Um, but he was saying, look, this is um, uh, this is the the most ecological way of farming. But this is the way of um, extracting nutrition from from this particular piece of fairly unproductive land. Um, and and I, you know, I've I've every confidence that he's had a really good life, and it and actually I can enjoy his his meat after that. Um, and I present this not as a um, sort of case study in what the right answer is, but in a in a different sense as a case study in 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 how complicated we humans are, in and and how difficult it is to um, really get to the crux of um, the the psychology and, and emotional um, dynamic. Um, I, I think the the idea that the farmers don't care is is not true. Um, uh, the idea that farmers don't care for their livestock is obviously not true. But, but equally, it's it's astonishing that we can care so much and and still be at the end at the end of the day killing killing the creatures we claim we care about. That example seemed to me is sort of a textbook case of what you discussed earlier in the book as the, the ancient contract. Uh, what is the ancient contract and how is it this, uh, this sort of explanation for why we started, maybe started farming in the first place? Yeah, well, the, the book has a sort of cross-cultural dimension. I, I look at how narratives of meat and, and rites and rituals um, related to meat consumption have arisen in, in diverse cultures and with a big focus on indigenous hunting cultures and the, the sorts of stories um, that, that they tell. Um, and, and I um, contrast those, for, for want of a better word, with the story and, and rites and rituals of, of meat in, in our culture. And I think um, that uh, this narrative of an ancient contract is um, often Im- implicit, but has been given e- explicit voice by by writers such as Michael Pollan in *The Omnivore's Dilemma* and some philosophers. The idea is that um, uh, long ago, when when animals were first domesticated, we we struck a deal, um, we, we we signed a contract, um, and the contract placed duties on on both parties. We would provide animals um, with a, a good life, um, protection, medical care, um, a, a good standard of living, and, and in exchange they would give us their bodies. They would donate um, their flesh and, and, and materials um, for our sustenance and, and use. And, and this is really the um, the metaphor or the idea that, that underpins um, uh, this this sort of welfare par- paradigm, animal welfare paradigm, um, and, and which shapes um, our, our attitude towards 
meet in, in diverse contexts. But um, but I think that it's a, a, as I go on to point out in the book, a, a flawed narrative. I think it's there's a deep dishonesty to it, and I think um, uh, and I think what the book tries to do is. Um, begin to tell a slightly different story about our relationship with meat, not in the sort of grandiose hope of supplanting this cultural narrative, but in the hope of um, uh, adding some nuance and, and seeing its, its shortcomings. One of the ways that you add nuances, instead of just taking this theoretical concept, you give some, some really concrete examples of indigenous hunting practices. How do certain indigenous communities think about eating meat and how does that shape their their ethical understanding of what it means to to eat animals. Well, in um, in in many of these cultures, for for all their diversity, um, stalking, tracking, and and killing animals um, re- requires that you, to a certain degree, adopt the animal's perspective. You need to, to to hunt a moose. You need to get into the mindset of the moose to to hunt reindeer. You need to project yourself into the body of the reindeer in order to understand how they're thinking, where they're going, and 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 ultimately to kill them. Um, but that very act of of projection or of um, mimetic empathy um, uh, brings the personhood of the animal into view. So it's it's common in these cultures for animals to be perceived to be persons. They are animal persons, often scarcely different to human persons. And that um, poses a significant ethical challenge because um, your sustenance then requires that you kill and consume another person. Um, and, and fears that, that this killing amounts to something akin to murder and that eating animals um, is uh, puts one at risk of cannibalism are common in various of these cultures. So you you have to find a way of navigating the risk that you're engaging in murder and cannibalism. And I spend um, a good deal of time in the book um, discussing the the Tucano, who are an Amazonian hunting society who have evolved a a really complex um, and and beautiful uh, cultural narrative uh, related to meat and meat consumption, which helps them make sense of, of this this great dilemma, and and um, and I think is very intelligent in the way it places um, curbs on on unnecessary consumption and and focuses their their mind on the question of necessity. Do I need to kill this animal? Um, because the the crux of their narrative um, is that if you if you kill more animals than you need, um, or if you treat them with with disrespect, you will be reborn um, as as the prey animal, as as that animal in in the next life. Um, so what you're dealing with is a, a relationship between equals. There's this symmetry of obligations, as 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 it's described. Each species has obligations towards the other, and if you violate those obligations, you'll be taken to be reborn in the in the flesh and and, and blood of of the other. The example that you give, you know, I, I think what's something that's very clear about it is that in a non-industrial farming context, you can't hide the fact that it is an animal. It's a, something that's living that you're consuming. Uh, what is the role that industrial farming and just the whole, uh, you know, the, the whole method of basically hiding the fact that we are eating animals uh, what what impact does that have on people's experience eating meat? Well, what psychologists um, and and researchers working on the meat paradox have, have begun to understand is the the many ways we detach from the um, ethical and emotional consequence of of what we do. And some of this detachment is 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 literal. You know, we we're not allowed onto these big farming units. There are ag-gag laws so that whistleblowers can't share what they've seen 
slaughterhouses are are out of view and difficult get on to get onto. So we're we're cut off from from the reality of it. Um, but there are more subtle forms of um, sort of dissociation and, and denial as well, which which shape our relationship. Um, in our use of language, even, and this has been observed for for many years, um, we, we beef not cows and pork not pigs, and and um, and recent research has shown that um, that when you switch that language around or you bring the um, uh, images of the animal into a sort of restaurant setting, it, it creates these dissonant emotions, and and people feel uncomfortable. They're they're more inclined to empathise with uh, the creature that that provided the meat on their plate, and they're more inclined to choose vegetarian dishes. Um, and the more highly processed that that meat has been as well, um, the the less empathy we feel. Um, there, there's a, a greater degree of empathy evoked by a sort of pig on a spit roast with its head still attached or a whole chicken compared to a highly processed burger or, or chicken nugget. Um, so there's there are various ways we, we dissociate the, the meat on our plate from the animal that provided it. Um, and then there's this uh, sort of tapestry of denial and um, categorization, which... Um, through which we um, downplay our estimation of of animal sentience. Um, we we typically treat food animals as being less intelligent, less emotionally sensitive than wild animals. Um, and in the moment of consumption, when we're putting the the meat in our mouth, um, if if we're quizzed and 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 researchers have done this, they've they found cleverer ways of quizzing people without them knowing what's going on. Um, if you if you ask people the right questions in in that moment, they they will um, downplay. Um, uh, um, the degree to which they recognise the animal as a morally relevant being. So, if you're eating beef, you're you're more inclined to think the cows are um, dumb and unimportant, um, <laughs> uh, to put it simply. Um, and all this builds on the fact that we're detached from the lives of animals. We we, we don't um, engage in in food production for, for various reasons. Um, lots of them perfectly valid, um, but it all adds up to this um, uh, sort of cloak, the cloak of denial, which we wrap around ourselves, which enables us as empathetic individuals to participate in this collective um, uh, um, edifice of meat consumption, which is almost psychopathic in its disregard for, for animal life. It's um, extraordinary the, and the disconnects between the, the individual concern that we each have and the collectively held um, uh, psychopathy is, I think, a, a, really, interesting, um, a really interesting dynamic that, that's being revealed through this meat paradox research. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. 
Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. What's also pretty shocking about it is the fact that this industrial farming process has a pretty significant impact on the people who are actually involved in the meat production. And there's some pretty startling uh, evidence that you lay out that that post-traumatic stress disorder is like a very common experience for people that are involved in this process. Um, you, I know you in the book you discuss your own experiences being in industrial farming facilities uh, and talking to these people. What what was your experience with that? Yeah, so the that there is evidence that um, slaughterhouse workers. Um, are yeah susceptible to various forms of emotional trauma and and um uh and post-traumatic stress um the i think there's there's much more research needed before we know how how prevalent um these issues are but the prevalence isn't necessarily the the interesting part it's the potential for trauma that i think is revealing um and and in some of these big industrial units um you can clearly see that it's a, a dangerous and disturbing environment to work in it's High, the production line is uh, high speed and it's repetitive and it's a physically dangerous environment. But even um, in, in smaller scale facilities, there there is a, a risk of, of emotional harm linked to um, the fact that um, the, the work involves killing um, and killing other sentient beings, killing other persons. And we can't help but perceive sometimes that that animals are persons, even if we, we, we try to deny it, um, causes distress on a really fundamental level. And I, um, I I experienced this in a very sort of minor way, but uh, still a, a hugely moving way in a in a slaughter facility that I visited, um, where there was a, a cow coming through, and I was in that moment I was quite closely involved in the process and in close proximity, and 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 the 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 act of killing. Um, struck me as 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 an act of murder that was the only word i could i could find to to describe this and it was um uh, a, a catalyst for a lot of um the, the subsequent events in the book and and i go on to explain in the book um looking at our evolutionary history and and um and cognitive neuroscience um why it is that animals impress upon us um as persons and and why it is that even if our cultural narrative denies them uh, moral value we we sometimes can't help but but perceive them to be um uh, persons um on a, on a similar moral plane to, to humans um and i trace that back into the the deep past and and um some events that happened um sometime around the, the sort of origin of our species yeah could you talk about that actually the you know our there's a an interesting section where you talk about how before human humans had speech a, a lot of the ways that they probably communicated was through mimicry of animal behaviors mm -hmm. uh what was that like and what was that sort of role of animal behaviors in the shaping of of our communication mm. so one of the questions i was keen to explore in the book was when when did all this um 
happen? At what point in our evolutionary history did eating meat, killing other animals become ethically or emotionally complicated? Um, if you look at, at other species, um, lions or bears, you, you don't see the same sense of tension or, or distress, um, uh, at least not in any visible sense that we can perceive. And, and in an evolutionary context, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense. If you need to kill to survive, then it doesn't make sense for you to evolve um, this uh, th this emotional response, which um, suggests that you shouldn't. <laughs> um, so I wanted to trace that back. Um, and the... Um, uh, the earliest evidence uh, of this uh, tension, I, I think, arises in our species um, uh, at least 40,000 years ago um, when we first start seeing um, various um, bits of ritual and art and image making. Um, but, but I look um, back much further than this at the, um, the evolution of, of early human species and the role, um, uh, as, as has been explained by archaeologists such as Stephen Meathan, the role that um, mimesis and mimicry played in, in early human communication. Prior to language, um, we, we needed to find a way to communicate about the natural world. Um, uh, and um, there's a, a good body of evidence which suggests we did this by um, uh, sort of gestural communication, enacting uh, the, the scenes and, and, and animals around us. Um, uh, and I trace that, that animal mimesis through to the the, the sort of beginning of modern human empathy, showing that there is there is a, a, a line that traces through. We had spent millions of years bending our bodies into animal forms and imitating their cries and dancing as animals. Um, and all of this primed us when, when modern human empathy emerged to, to extend that empathy very readily and directly to, to other animals. Um, this is uh, the point at which we started um, enacting the sort of more complex um, mimesis and perspective taking that we see in modern indigenous hunters and it was at this point i think that the the meat paradox emerged that we first started to feel the sense of deep ethical conflict um, associated with killing so just to to quickly go back to industrial farming practices i think a major way that myself and a lot of people were first exposed to vegan or vegetarian talking points was through documentaries uh, that basically make the case that eating meat is unnatural and that, you know, that our ancestors didn't eat meat uh, or, you know, uh, things that PETA might put out of, you know, really horrific, terrifying images of industrial farming processes. And I think you, t you take a very interesting perspective on this tactic. Uh, you know, I, I, would you say that, that you're, you're, you're critical of this approach that you think that it actually sort of uh, gets communicates the wrong message uh, what, what's the the issue or the, or or what's the the benefit of this approach to vegetarian or vegan activism so the book is largely concerned with the um, the the psychology of, of meat eating and the various strategies that we as as omnivores or meat eaters employ to um, to avoid the the ethical question, to to look away um, and and um, deny the the moral implications of our behaviour, but at the other end of the spectrum, I also look at how how those who have made that ethical commitment might be moved by a sort of inverse set of psychological pressures to to retell the the story of of meat to um, 
to deny that the meat was ever a valuable part of our diets, to deny that it has any nutritional contribution to make, to deny that animals could possibly be part of a sustainable farming system. And we see all this in, in certain strands of, of vegan and animal rights advocacy. It's not, not in all of it. It's, it's a, the vegan movement is multifaceted and, and, and I'm, I think most of um, the messages that come out are, are perfectly reasonable, but, um, but there are these strands that, that, that deny that, um, that we should um, in any circumstances be eating animal foods um, that, that associate animal food consumption um, excessively with um, sort of adverse health outcomes and, and cancer um, over interpreting the evidence shall we say to put it politely or, or misrepresenting the evidence um, and I think that the, the reality is far more interesting. Um, of course, we don't need industrial animal farming, but there are very good reasons um, to include animals in organic or regenerative or agroecological farming systems. They can play a positive role on the land. There are certain population groups that are um, uh, more at risk um, uh, of, of nutritional deficiencies um, uh, in, a, in a fully plant-based scenario. Um, I'm thinking of pregnant women and, and infants and so on. And there are around the world many people living in food insecurity who would, who would benefit from eating more animal foods. Now, none of this is an argument for the, for the status quo, and, and none of it, I think, actually um, offers uh, closure on the ethical side either. But it does um, suggest that there is an interesting tension to navigate here. There are good reasons in a nutritional and ecological sense to, to, to eat animals uh, in, in a carefully caveated context. But at the same time, um, that, that consumption might still involve murder. It, it might still involve this, um, this act of, of, of grave ethical concern, um, which um, when enacted, even, even if the act is necessary, um, might have psychological and emotional consequences that, that need to be handled. Um, and it's that tension between um, necessity and, and murder, as I frame it, which I think is the crux of the meat paradox. Would it, would it be right to say that you're not trying to convince people to, you know, fully remove meat or meat products from their diet, just encouraging people to radically reduce for, for two reasons, for environmental reasons, and then also for health reasons. And there's a particular diet that you discuss in it. It's the, the Eat Lancet diet. It was a, a study done. I was wondering if you could talk about this diet, um, this study that was done, and then some of the responses and backlash to not only the, not just the suggestion that people should go vegan or vegetarian, but the suggestion that people should just reduce their meat consumption a little. Yeah, so I mean, the, the book actually isn't trying to persuade um, anyone to do anything specific with a diet. It doesn't, um, it's not advocating for a, a single solution. It's more interested in prying open the debate and, and revealing the psychological complexity of it than with nailing down what, what the exact answer is. But it does present evidence that, um, that if we adopted a sustainable farming system um, along, um, well, actually along a variety of lines, but primarily along this sort of regenerative or agroecological line, the, there would simply be much less meat to go around. If you shared it around equitably, um, it would involve a significant drop in per capita consumption, average per capita consumption um, uh, among high consuming nations like the UK and the US. Many people will be eating more in this sort of hypothesized scenario, but, but, but most of us would be eating much less. And there's a really um, uh, compelling body of evidence um, uh, from a variety of studies, all of which are asking slightly different questions, that, that this is true. There's there's really no scenario where we can continue to eat as we are today and expect to have a, a livable planet. And the the Eat Lancet report was was one of these studies um, which uh, 
went about the question in a quite idiosyncratic way um, but, and came up with this um, hypothesized diet. Um, and, and there's lots wrong with the report. There are, there, there are many areas in which their, their modeling or assumptions could be challenged. But what was striking was the degree to which it was dismissed as a sort of vegan conspiracy, simply because it said, eat less meat, um, or it said many of us should eat less meat. Um, the, there were high-profile food writers and, and figures in the food movement who, who um, launched quite personal attacks on the report authors, who dismissed them as, as vegans and vegetarians, as though that was some sort of um, uh, incriminating um, you know, uh, uh, status of bias. Um, just by being a vegetarian, you're, you're no longer a good scientist, they were insinuating. Um, and, and it created this um, quite bizarre sort of... Um, milkshake of myth and hyperbole um, and misinformation, which is still frothing around social media. Um, the words eat Lancet um, can prompt um, all sorts of excitable responses, um, mostly for, for spurious reasons. Something that we that we haven't discussed yet, but it is a, a very significant part of your book, is some of the, the ethical questions. Uh, you talk about Peter Singer, who's arguably the most famous um, ethicist when it comes to the animal rights movement, but you also discuss, um, uh, you know, phenomenologists like uh, Emmanuel Levinas. And uh, what what role do, do these sort of ethical questions or these ethical framings bear on how you consider uh, the meat paradox? Um, the, the the key distinction I, I was trying to draw out in referring to those two philosophers that, that you just named um, was that between a, a, an approach um, such as Peter Singer's, which is trying to establish a framework within which you establish whether an action is right and wrong. It's, it's a, um, there, there are writers who have, um, and philosophers who have taken on the meat question and, and gone about it in that way. They, they construct a rational argument, they try and lead you through the argument, they try and take you from A to B to C and, and onto their conclusion, whether that's, you know, eat better meat or eat no meat, whatever it is. Um, and that's not really what, what the book is about. Um, the book is about our ethical experience. What, what happens um, when we um, stand before an animal and take their life? What, what emotions does that evoke? And what, what are the, what's the underlying psychology that, that shapes that experience? Um, and, and, the, um, uh, and in particular, uh, in, in the sort of face-to-face -face encounter, embodied encounters. Um, and and the, the key point uh, that I am aspiring to in, in making that distinction is that uh, it, it's not a purely rational um, issue. It's, it's not something that we can settle solely by argumentation because we are complicated creatures and we're possessed of this um, ancient and, and convoluted um, physiology and psychology, which um, has um, its own story, which um, is, is shaping the, the meat debate today in profound ways. Um, so I, um, I warn uh, readers early on in the book that, that they're not going to get a, a, a clear and cohesive argument here. They're just going to be taken into the, the complexity and, and, and emotional um, depth of the issue, or at least that's my ambition. So obviously the book just came out, so I'm, you know, there's still time for people to react to it. But have there been any uh, you know, interesting you know, praise or, or criticism that you've received from the book or just from people that you know? Well, it's really early days, yeah. As you say, the book's only um only been out a, a week or so, um, and it's it's been positively reviewed in in the in the UK in the Financial Times in the Sunday Times, um, uh, two quite um different but 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 striking reviews in in, in how in how um 
supportive they were of the the book's sort of central ambition of of delving into nuance and complexity and and, and not necessarily taking sides. I think there will be pushback um, from from folk at, at both ends of the dietary spectrum. I think um, if if you write a book that um, that suggests that animal consumption might be uh, beneficial or even necessary in some contexts, um, then that's going to be controversial. Um, and and my my motivations as as an author are going to be questioned. Is this just one big um, you know argument to try and justify meat consumption and and rationalise this um, uh, th- this choice that we make? Um, so I. Um, yeah, I, I expect there'll be there'll be some pushback around that end, and I and I look forward to that conversation. And at the other end, um, uh, we, I mean, there there'll be those who who suspect I'm a closet vegan and a and I'm just uh, adopting the a pretense at omnivory in order to try and um, undermine meat eating and livestock farming and so on. Um, and I've I've uh, been called a, a, a pretend, not pretend, sorry, a pretend omnivore, a closet vegan many times, but by those who are in that um, in that kind of strident pro-meat camp. Um, so I, I have some experience of um, sitting in between the, the warring factions. Um, so we'll see what comes. You, you position yourself uh, in the middle. And I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, you're still in the end of the day advocating for a rat or sorry, I don't want to say advocating it. <laughs> no, you're, 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 you still are questioning whether or not the amount of uh, meat we consume is a good thing. Uh, so, you know, on, on that end, you're making, you make very powerful arguments. And I think, I, I, I really do think that the way in which you profile farmers is interesting because I frequently feel that in the debate, the people actually involved in meat production or, or organic meat production are left out. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, why you chose to highlight farming farmers so much, uh, and maybe a little bit about some of the work that you do uh, outside of writing. Hmm. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I work for um, an organization that um, employs farmers. My, my boss is a celebrated pig farmer. Um, uh, organic pig farmer and and on, on a day-to-day basis i work with farmers so there um i guess it was um i'm not sure how deliberate it was that i um profiled farmers in the book i'm, I'm just surrounded by them <laughs> and and um and and um and deeply impressed by the the varying insights and, and different perspectives that, that they bring to the debate they're a, um, a fascinating and diverse bunch um uh and 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 I think that their voice needs to be heard. That it's a, it's a really difficult um, situation at the moment in the UK um, in, in 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 food and farming um, in our sort of post Brexit context. Um, climate and nature crises escalating. Retailers uh, have have broken the supply chain in such a way that um, farmers are struggling to make ends meet, and our government signing these irresponsible trade deals. Um, so the many of the more sort of philosophical questions that I um, uh, approach in the book uh, will seem fanciful um, or, or detached from reality um, for many farmers and, and those who are working the land and, and facing these more immediate challenges. But I think they need to be asked. Um, I think if we're to address the, the ecological crisis, we need to see significant changes in our farming system uh, across this decade, huge changes, um, huge changes in our diets. And, and that, I think, provides an opportunity to ask more fundamental questions about 
the role that animals should play and and the the commodification of animal life um which at least in principle most people i think agree is a an undesirable thing um but it's a really difficult question how how do you go about decommodifying animal life if if we think that animals might have a role on the land and in our diets albeit a very different one today um then then what does it look like to respect them and value them primarily for their ecological contribution and individual dignity and not just as providers of meat um and what sort of lives should they leave lead and and how do we unpick the the kind of tapestry of denial that we've wrapped around ourselves and, and question the presumptions of sort of the animal welfare paradigm and and think more broadly and deeply about um what what that relationship should be um so the book doesn't yeah as, as i've alluded to doesn't propose to have answers to all these big questions but it does at least set up a slightly different conversation i think and, and one in which farmers should be central so obviously for anyone who's listening to this i imagine that you know anyone anyone who's made it this far is probably a person who if they're not a vegetarian vegan or someone interested in in or someone who is that they're at least interested in vegetarianism or veganism uh, are there any you know documentaries or books that you would warn people against uh, and on the other hand anything that you would recommend that people check out i mean in in a broad sense um the i, I think there are um lo there's lots of good writing that's been done about the the positive role that the animals can play in organic and, and regenerative um uh, farming systems and, and in an ecological sense i think there's lots to be learned from those books but i'd warn anyone away from from books which indulge in just cheap taking cheap cheap shots at, at vegans um portraying them in a sort of um uh as a caricature as silly uneducated people uh, who, who don't know what's going on or who deny that the veganism is is motivated fundamentally by care and concern for for animals and the environment so um i i'm gonna refrain from from naming names but there are high profile books and films out there which i think fall into that category and at the other end of the spectrum if um uh if people are watching vegan documentaries and and animal rights documentaries i i think um uh I think that there's a lot going for those and and there are significant causes for ethical concern obviously with sort of factory farming but even with higher welfare farming and and the the, the moral complexity of killing an animal I, I think um those ethical questions need to be asked and, and poor practice needs to be exposed but when those books and films stray into portraying meat as toxic waste and animal foods as um uh, asbestos and um, carcinogenic junk um without acknowledging the the broader nuance then then you know you're in either in a sort of um uh, a propaganda exercise or, or the authors and producers have succumbed to this complex psychology and and are rewriting the world as it is to to align with their ethical vision um again i, I won't name them but um there, there are lots of books out there um which fall into that and, and films which fall into that category um so so I, I hope what the this book will do the meat paradox is is help people see through some of that and and read between the lines and recognize the the value in in both sides of the argument and and also the denial that that can um uh fall upon us at, um for, from either side do you have plans for the future to write anything anything else any mm -hmm. uh you know, to further your your discussion in the meat pirate paradox. Yeah, I mean, it's early days. I, I'm I'm planning the follow up book now. I'm I'm working on the proposal. It's um, it, it's sort of a sequel, but sort of off in a different direction. But it um, 
anyways, it, it's looking at de-extinction and, and the mammoth and genetic technologies, biotechnologies, and um, retelling the story of domestication and, and the, the the coming shifts towards um, designed animals and, and human animal chimeras and so on. So, um, but we're, we're a couple of years off, I, I think. Um, that that's seeing the light of day. Wow, yeah, that's definitely different, but really interesting. Well, uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thanks for uh, having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, I really recommend this book. I think it's one of one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. Um, and it's also very, very beautifully written, uh, too. So, uh, thank yeah, much. thank you so much, Rob. Cheers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.